Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll look at Ezekiel chapters 14 and 15. We'll start to talk about the links and teasers that Ezekiel drops for us, some specific examples of that and what that might mean for us today. Stephanie and I survived our first hurricane on the eastern shore of Virginia. Everyone's okay, just a a toppled grill and a trash can, branches and stuff. I think it was technically a tropical storm by the time it got to us, but all the ripped apart trees and and crazy winds, and it really reminds you of how fragile we actually are, how the things we use for security don't work. That's my segue for us, I guess, to think about the probing prophecies of Ezekiel today, unraveling our false securities. We're going to dive right into the passage in this episode, right up front today, and then we'll unpack it and flesh out some of the implications. I've asked Justice Can in Louisville, Texas, to read the next prophecies in our plotline. This is Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12 through chapter 15, verse 8, in the ESV translation. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God. They would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood, to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you. When you see their ways and their deeds... And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, 
can it ever be used for anything. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord, when I set my face against them, and I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. The word of the Lord. Now, I was struggling to think through what the best way to unpack this one would be. Uh, We could try to take an apologetics approach, a defense of the faith on this, and talk through the different kinds of actions that the Lord says he will take and flesh out what he's actually saying to help us come to grips with his message. Uh, We could take a historical backgrounds approach here, try to explain what was going on with the nation of Babylon, uh, what their conquest looked like, ha- how that lines up with the things the Lord is warning about, you know, what the different kinds of woods are. <laughs> but there's this really cool, really interesting, really insightful feature of the book of Ezekiel that we haven't covered yet. And these chapters give a great opportunity for us to talk about that. And that feature is the links and teasers that Ezekiel is constantly dropping for us. He's stitching together even the most seemingly random parts of the prophecies. So today we're going to start out with some basic info on what's actually going on in these chapters, what's being said, how it fits into the overall developing argument and strategy of the book, and then we'll talk about uh, another famous story in the Bible that this part alludes to. Essentially, this week we'll be talking about the hyperlinks that Ezekiel leaves us to other parts of the Bible. And then, in the next episode, we'll talk about the links and teasers within the book. How one part points forward to another, how one chapter picks up what an earlier one only hinted at, that kind of stuff, and what we learn from that. So that's the plan. And uh, let's get right to it. First off, what's happening in what we just read? Well starts out sounding like more of the same, right? We've got these very blunt, very brutal warnings and even guarantees that the sovereign Lord is going to judge Jerusalem in some very tangible ways. And as tempting as it is to just add this to our list of similar sounding warnings and skip ahead, there's more going on here than just another rehashing of the same thing. We've got two back-to-back messages from the Lord given to the prophet. Each of them break down with an illustration or example that convinces us of the inevitability of what's coming. And then it follows with a declaration, this is what the Lord says, of the actual catastrophe that will happen. So in both cases here, we're moving from a general principle to applying that principle to the situation with Jerusalem. And all of that is going to show God's fairness and the seriousness of what's about to happen. Okay, but that's just the broad strokes outline. Let's let's fill it in a little bit more before we start connecting it to other parts of the Bible. In that first part at the end of chapter 14, the principle that's probed is something like individualized justice. Like, in case you thought you were going to have another Moses moment here where someone steps in and prays you out of this, or if you thought nepotism was going to get you out of this, then you're crazy. 
Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were your neighbors, it wouldn't make you any more safe or secure if you're on trial, right? Now, the prophet isn't actually addressing his audience directly here. He's saying, hypothetically speaking, if judgment was coming on a nation, do you think this would work? Noah, Daniel, and Job wouldn't offset the unresolved sins. Their faith and faithfulness would only save themselves. In terms of the specific agents of the judgment, we see famine, wild beasts, sword and bloodshed, pretty crazy stuff. But we've actually looked at this already at the end of Ezekiel chapter 5. These aren't random overkills. They're actually the specific covenant curses that are laid out in Leviticus chapter 26. So God isn't arbitrarily lashing out with creative torture. He's saying, hypothetically speaking, if a nation signs a contract, breaks the contract, don't you think the terms of breaking the contract are going to apply when I file suit? Okay, then comes verse 21, and it's not so hypothetical anymore. If we can all agree that this wouldn't be fair for the guilty to go free because they're innocent neighbors, then we should acknowledge the fact that Jerusalem's curses are still coming. This loophole you may have thought of isn't going to remedy that. In fact, it's really interesting the Lord is actually so convinced that the appropriateness of this catastrophe that he says when you see the survivors that come out of it, you'll feel better. <laughs> you'll know why I did this. That, that's how messed up Jerusalem is right now. All right, let's, let's fill in some more details of the next part, chapter 15, and then we'll talk about how this fits into the context. Then we'll get to some of those links and teasers. So in chapter 15 here, short chapter, eight verses, we get a parable about vine wood. The principle here, instead of focusing on the punishment matching the crime or the criminal, is essentially you are what you eat. Something's nature determines its use, its purpose. Something moving in a certain direction will inevitably reach what's on the end of that path. You can't shove a square block into a triangle hole no matter how hard you try and how much you convince yourself you can because it's a block. If it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, looks like a duck, it's a duck. Can you use vine wood for anything you can use other wood for? No. Why? Because it's vine wood. <laughs> it's not capable of being made into a coat rack. Okay, whoever manages to escape the conquest campaign of the Babylonians is not really the point. The point is the kind of people these people have made themselves into, the kind of hearts they have chiseled out from within. In other words, I I'm mixing way too many metaphors here. Just like the inherent properties of vine wood limits what it's suitable for, the spiritual makeup of these Jerusalem criminals limits what they're suited for, too. So that the people don't blame their problems on their circumstances, God is saying that in this particular case, the disasters they're facing are happening because that's the only thing their corruption warrants. Okay, think Judgment Day kind of stuff, not hurricane season. If you don't put a collar on a raccoon with rabies that attacks your chickens and take it for a walk, why would you think I'd make Jerusalem into a Garden of Eden? The principle is very similar here to the one in chapter 14, which is that the punishment matches the criminal. 
it's unpacking and, and furthering the same point. But here, instead of focusing on each person being responsible for their punishment, the focus is on the punishment being the natural consequence or the logical response to the people they've already made themselves to be. If you painted a target on your chest and ran through a shooting range, would you really blame the people behind the glass for having you in their sights? If you took steroids, would you really blame the officials and referees for kicking you out of the game? No. Jacked-up athletes aren't good for the game. They're only good for disqualification. So if the Jerusalemites are the Vinewood here, then yes, they've set themselves up for the fire. Now, a quick note of application here. I think that move from principle to personal application can help to disillusion us of our sins and spiritual barriers that we put up. I think it can be an effective witnessing tool, to use that evangelical lingo, uh, just like the prophet Nathan got through to David with a hypothetical story. You know, hey, what do you think should happen to this rich guy that stole the poor man's sheep? He should die. Oh, well, yeah, actually, see, that's you. (laughs) You've done that, haven't you? You know, if you jump straight into a conversation with a non-Christian saying, let's take a test of how many of the Ten Commandments you've broken, uh, they might put up even more barriers. But if you can start talking about a principle that you can help them to see and agree on, then, then it might help to actually break down the barriers when you move to the particulars. Also, I think these specific principles that God is drawing out here are helpful for our own spiritual perspectives in their own right. Harsh as these particular judgments against Israel seem, the point that God is making is actually you can't blame the farmers for not making the vine wood into a coat rack. The punishment fits the crime. The punishment, the, the punisher only ever does what's fair in response to the betrayal and behavior. If you're wondering what kind of behavior could have warranted this catastrophe, you'll find out more in some of the chapters ahead. But for now, don't miss out on the principles. Okay, so now let's put this into context. We got two back-to-back prophecies insisting on the inevitability of the judgments that's coming. Insisting on the fairness of God's assessment and punishment. Using a principle to particular case kind of move to break through people's barriers. But we got to remember, too, this is coming on the heels of chapters 12 to 14, 12. This section that goes after the false prophets, the false advertisers. Remember that the sea of noise tries to drown out the voice of God, not by overtaking it, but by undermining it. And the prophecies here follow up on that as an answer to the false advertisers who have deluded or twisted the clear warning and message of God. After these chapters, in chapters 16 to 23, we see a lot more explicit indictments about what the Israelites have done wrong, which essentially supports the warning and fairness of God that's talked about here. So basically what we've read today is like a key transitional section in Ezekiel. It's reasserting God's justice and punishment in the face of its denial and dilution, but it's also getting us ready to hear about those crimes that have warranted these punishments, the the making of these criminals. Now, hopefully all of that gives you a better idea of what we've got here. 
in Ezekiel 14 and 15. But like I kept pointing forward to in this episode, very meta of me, is that these prophecies are a great test case for important future of the book of Ezekiel. We're going to spend the rest of this episode and the next one talking about the links and the teasers that Ezekiel leaves for us throughout its prophecies. Now, what do I mean by that, links and teasers? Well, in pretty much every book of the Bible, you'll see connections that are made with other books of the Bible, and you'll see connections within the book itself. That's why we have footnotes and cross-references, right? So, for example, the first five books of the Bible are really like one giant book, right? And if you read Genesis with the other books in mind, you'll notice all the ways that it points forward to other books, like, like Exodus and Deuteronomy. You'll see that the Garden of Eden is arranged in a way that reminds us of the Israelite temple. You'll see that the specific details of Abraham's life are framed in such a way that remind us of the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. It's, it's showing us that Abraham kept the law before it was even given. Pointing forward, teasers, links within the Bible. See what I'm saying? Even in a book as, as seemingly random as the book of Proverbs, the sayings build on themselves, and by the end... We get the so-called Proverbs 31 woman. We see this big finale of a life of wisdom that was talked about, lived out. But, you know, let's just keep it simple. Lots of Proverbs were written by Solomon, right? Where do we learn about Solomon? First and Second Kings, the, the historical books. The prophets point to and expand on the prophecies of other prophets. Kings from the historical books interact with prophets from the prophetic books. The Psalms meditate on the law of the Lord. You get the idea. This happens a lot. So it should be so, no surprise to us that Ezekiel does this. He connects to other books. He connects to other parts of books. But what are the specific ways that Ezekiel does this? Where do his hyperlinks point to? Next time, we're going to talk about the incredibly interesting and insightful way that Ezekiel stitches together material from within his own book, dropping hints of things that are expanded on later, splitting things in half, hammering on certain problems in the first part that get answers in the second part. But with what's left of this episode, we're going to talk about the other books of the Bible that Ezekiel tends to point us to. So think about the pair of prophecies that we just read for today. Just in there, we see Ezekiel point back to Noah, Daniel, and Job, we talked about how the four agents of judgment that are listed are actually a reference to Leviticus 26. You may recall from the famous passage in the Gospel of John about abiding in Christ like a vine. The Bible uses the metaphor of a vine to talk about God's relationship with his people in a number of places. Psalm 80 talks about Israel as a vine that God has planted and cared for. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5 talks about God caring for the vine too, but the vine only giving rotten compost instead. Inedible grapes instead of good ones. Some of the phrases that Ezekiel uses are borrowed from Jeremiah, like God stretching out his hand against the Israelites. Interesting stuff, right? But how is it supposed to help you unless you want to memorize all those details? Well, First off, this reinforces our conviction here that the more you think through the Bible and the more of the Bible you think through, the more clear it will become. There's always room to grow. If you felt like you've mastered your one-year Bible plan once and are now a pro, 
Or if, on the other hand, you feel like just reading a chapter of Ezekiel is super intimidating, it's okay. You don't need to get a degree in biblical linguistics. Just keep at it. Read more and, and more of it. The, the picture will start getting clearer the more pieces of the puzzle you have to work with. But what about Ezekiel now? Well, practically speaking, if you want to see what Ezekiel is pointing to and drawing from, his particular hyperlinks, so to speak, the big ones are going to be Deuteronomy, really all of the law, but Deuteronomy is a good place to start. Maybe Leviticus too, if you're feeling zealous. Okay, Deuteronomy and Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an older contemporary of Ezekiel, and they talked about a lot of the same things. Ezekiel often plays off of something that Jeremiah um, said in, in various ways. So Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, if you want a couple of manageable companion books or study guides for the book of Ezekiel, don't rush to Amazon quite yet. Just read those first. Deuteronomy will help you understand the spiritual foundation the standards of what should and shouldn't be done and what will and won't happen in this covenant relationship with God that Ezekiel is drawing out. And Jeremiah will help you understand the the current problems, the current sins, and the setting for Ezekiel's day as well. Um, But there's one last hyperlink that I want to click on here from these chapters. This isn't something that I've seen talked about a ton, but I actually believe the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a key part of this pair of prophecies. Um, Could it be that the fact I just preached on that part of Genesis in our series at the church might be skewing my perspective a little bit? Uh, Possibly, uh, definitely. But let's just think about the text here for a minute, and you can judge for yourself. In the chapter right after this one, chapter 16, Sodom shows up as a major player in Ezekiel's metaphor or, or parable as a negative example. Check this out. Ezekiel 16:48. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never behaved as wickedly as you and your daughters have behaved. So is it possible that Ezekiel is using the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to make a comparison to the Israelites and break through their defenses? Uh, Yeah, he does it immediately a chapter later. Okay, so what about these chapters suggests he's doing that here too? Well, remember here, the strategy is moving from principle to practice, hypothetical to gotcha, it's you. And our passage started out, suppose a country sins, right? A nation, city, whatever. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would save only their own lives by their righteousness. Now, Genesis 18 and 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, revolves around Abraham trying to get God to take it easy on the city of Sodom because his nephew Lot lives there. Will you really wipe it all out, not spare the place for the sake of 50 godly people that are in it? Abraham pleads, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what's right? So the whole story wrestles with God's fairness to the righteous and wicked, but it's easier to see because, well, it's not us. It's not Israel. Suppose, hypothetically, we had another Sodom and Gomorrah on our hands. Don't you think... God would judge fairly and individually like he did that. Uh, 
Yeah. But, oh yeah, um, it's Jerusalem. Okay, but there's more. Somewhat surprisingly, in the gotcha moment here in Ezekiel 14, the Lord says, Some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. They will come out to you, and when you see their behavior and their deeds, you will be consoled about the catastrophe I brought on Jerusalem. Everything I brought on it. They will console you when you see their behavior and deeds because you will know that it is not without reason I have done everything that I have done in it, declares the Sovereign Lord. Which is a little weird to point out, except that's exactly what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's precious little righteous nephew Lot is not so righteous. He, he offers his own daughters to be, to be gang-raped is what it is. It's, it's horrible. And then his own daughters at the end who survive pretty much due to their own dad what he offered to let the men of Sodom do to them. We're reassured of God's justice when we see the actual wickedness of the survivors, realizing it was God's mercy that made this happen, not his uncontrollable anger. All right, but there's even more. In Ezekiel 15, what's it say is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem? Metaphorically, literally, etc. Fire, right? It goes up in flames. Sound familiar? Although they have escaped from the fire, the fire will still consume them, it says. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, it says. Now Lot's wife, in Genesis 19, remember, was explicitly told multiple times, don't linger or turn back to the darkness, get away. And yet she lingers, and the fire consumes her even as she kind of tries to escape. So what's that prime example of a hyperlink tell us here? Well, it adds another layer of depth. Just like the Lord is using a principle to particulars kind of strategy to break through the stubborn audience's defenses, the teasers that remind us of Sodom and Gomorrah do the same thing. Oh yeah, those disgusting foreigners, those Sodom city dwellers. Of course God sent fire from heaven on those criminals. Of course the city wasn't spared. Where was the ten righteous people? If they were there, God would have brought them out like Lot. But even Lot wasn't any better. Man. And the Lord takes all that recollection and emotion and redirects it back on his own people who have done the exact same thing assuming that their spiritual, special, religious status or heritage or ethnicity made them exempt from the punishment for their total betrayal and evil. This week, we can be humbled by those lessons ourselves as we give up any illusion of our own innocence and ponder the basis of our relationship with Christ. We can also look at one of the most blunt, books of the Bible about God's judgment here and take its invitation seriously, to, to think through the fairness of God, to, to open up our doubts and hesitations or self-deceptions and let him walk us through these parables. God judges each person accordingly. No nepotism, no miscalculated court cases. If we have rejected and abandoned his covenant, if we have made ourselves in divine wood, what's really our suitable future? 
We can think through this strategy of principle to particulars and use it in our gospel witness, gently letting the Lord enter in through the back door. And we can read Deuteronomy and Jeremiah for some practical study guides on the prophet Ezekiel, helping us to put our Bibles together. So I hope this episode has equipped you with those vital contributions these prophecies in Ezekiel 14 and 15 are making. Next time, we'll pick up this conversation and talk about the links and teasers Ezekiel gives us within its own pages and draw out more of what we might learn from that. As we seek to understand more and more of the Bible and all its connections, as we seek to let that instill in us a proper reverence and fear for the Lord, as we try to bear witness to the light of his gospel as a result, we pray in the words of Lord Tennyson's poem called Strong Son of God, Immortal Love. Lord, let knowledge grow from more to more but more of reverence in us dwell, that mind and soul according well may make one music as before. But vaster, we are fools and slight, we mock thee when we do not fear. But help thy foolish ones to bear, help thy vain worlds to bear thy light. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning over at Andrew Horning Sound, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson and the continued support of listeners like you. Don't forget to check out The Rebind's Patreon page, patreon.com slash The Rebind, to support us with a few dollars each month so we continue to put out episodes and so you can even get some bonus content. I'll see you guys next time.